Well, I have two daughters who are in their 20s, and like everyone else their age, they're trying to sort out their futures, figure out what life is all about, what they're going to do. And the most common kinds of advice that they get um, are to hear things like, follow your passion, pursue your dreams, do what you love, and love what you do. But is this advice right? Does it lead to vocational clarity, to personal fulfillment, and human flourishing? The assumption behind advice like that, the follow your dreams or your passions, is that there are passions and interests inside each one of us that we just need to unlock. And if we find that, we find the key to life. But is this look inside yourself advice right? Is it the right way to think about our lives? Is it sound advice? Now, I don't think it's completely wrong to try to figure out and understand your gifts and skills and passions and deciding what to do with your life. But if you think about it for a moment, the look inside advice has some flaws. First of all, it's kind of self-centered, if you think about it. It can even be narcissistic. Maybe we need to balance that look-inside approach or impulse with a commitment to find not just a passion but a purpose in life. And that purpose needs to come from something bigger and greater than ourselves. That's certainly the conviction of the writers of the Bible. What we need, they suggest, is not a passion to give our lives to but a purpose. In fact, researchers looking at the lives of successful people have found that these folks don't just look inside and then plan their lives around it. Instead, they look outside, they find a purpose, you might even call it God's call on their life, and then they give their lives to that cause. So the idea is to be aware of your passions, your strengths and gifts, but even more to remember that we need to hear the voice of God in our lives, to seek out the purpose that he has for us, the purpose that he has for our lives. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at a short letter in the, in the Bible called 1 John. It's written, we think, by the Apostle John. The letter's not actually signed. Um, but it was written to some early Christians living about 60 years after the time of Jesus, in the latter part of the first century. It was at a time when there were a number of churches scattered throughout the area. And in one particular area, this man named John had some leadership responsibility over a series of house churches. And they'd had a challenge. One of the challenges was that those who'd previously been a part of their little churches had decided they knew better and had left and were spreading some teaching that John and others felt was false. They were challenging some of the core beliefs, some of the moral practices that had once been common among the Christians. And so John wrote a letter designed to recenter them, to remind them of the core of their beliefs and practices, to test the authenticity of their faith in Christ. So he told them, for example, if you know God... You'll obey his commands. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He says, if you really love God and really love Jesus, you'll love one another. And next week, we're going to learn about what he says about if you call yourself a Christian, you'll affirm that Jesus is the Son of God who came in human form. Now, all of this was designed along the way to give them a sense of authenticity about their faith, what it was to authentically live for Jesus Christ. But he takes a pause in this at the end of chapter 2 to offer some words of encouragement and advice and to recenter them around a purpose in their lives, words of assurance that they need to hear and also words of kind of a little bit of a kick in the behind. So what I want to do first is read chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. The words will be on the screen, but if you want to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, you can on page 1857, page 1857. Let me just read what John writes. He says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. 
I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Now, these are a couple of parallel statements. There's uh, three statements about children, three statements about fathers, and three statements about young men. So what's the deal with this children, fathers, and young men deal? Well, some just say he's talking about different age groups, different uh, categories, like we have mothers of preschoolers and we have empty nesters. You know, he's talking about different stages of life. And then others say, no, it's more about spiritual maturity. In other words, that we have different challenges and opportunities at each stage of our lives. More likely, it's more the latter, about spiritual maturity, but it also appears we shouldn't spend too much time trying to rethink about these in those categories because what he says seems to also apply not just to a particular phase of life or a particular phase of our spiritual lives, but to all of us as a whole. Throughout the entire book of John, he consistently refers to the readers as children. Fourteen different times, he says, uses the word children to describe the people he's writing to. In virtually every case, he's... he's, um, Uh, referring to Christians. In other words, he's not talking down to us, he's talking to us. Instead of reminding us, what he's doing is reminding us of our dependence upon God, just the way that children are dependent upon their parents. And he's reminding them of the need to maintain a kind of innocence and trust rather than cynicism and skepticism. Equally, when he mentions fathers, we know what it's like to be around people who are mature and wise and have more experience than we do. They have more perspective on life and can help us to kind of put things that are happening in our lives in a sort of context. And spiritually, that translates into those who over the years have grown to know Jesus in deeper and deeper ways. And then there are young men who metaphorically, the way John uses it, are full of strength and vigor to fight the spiritual battles against the devil. Now, let me just acknowledge up front that this can, for some of you, be off-putting because John uses three straight masculine metaphors to talk about all of this. I don't think his point is to gender this. I think he's talking about different ages and stages of life, and he's making a spiritual point. He's pointing out that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will experience the full range of spiritual life stages, and that to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, we need to embrace each one of these and grow in these specific ways. At each stage, there's something new to learn. Now, again, he includes six statements, two about children, two about fathers, two about young men, They operate as parallel statements, so I want to take each pair together and look at what we can learn about these three stages. And in the pair addressed to children, he focuses first on forgiveness. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The central message of Christian faith is forgiveness. And we don't much like to talk about sin. The idea that uh, it's not something we're proud of, and so we like to undermine it or, or... really not consider it at all. But the reality is, as much as we might make excuses or deny it, there are times when we fail to do what's right, when we feel and when we feel the shame and guilt of that, when the forgiveness offered us through Jesus become precious when we understand our own sinfulness. It's forgiveness that comes not because we deserve it, but because of what Jesus did. Now, to try to get your head around the idea, let me just um, uh, say that you mess up. You say something rude, you betray a confidence, you take advantage of someone just because you can. Now, because you're not a sociopath, you eventually come to the point where you feel like, wow, I really wish I could rewind the clock and do that over again and have another chance. But you usually can't. In fact, you know that sometimes you can never fully repay the debt that you've incurred, that you owe the other person, either financially or relationally. Whenever we see sin, it costs something. 
Either we pay the sin for our misdeed because we're punished. You speed, you get caught, you pay a ticket. Or the other person accepts that punishment and absorbs it. Depending on what you have done, the cost can be high. One or the other of you has to pay. But what if instead of punishment, the other person surprises you and absorbs that cost for you? How would you feel? Relieved? Grateful? Surprised? Let me give you an, uh, an example, um, and I'll admit that this may not connect for all of you, but uh, that I think might help you get the idea. In 2008 and 9, the U.S. economy nearly collapsed. In the fall of 2008, many of you know that bankers and others had been practicing uh, practices for years um, that uh, imploded. Mortgage-backed securities were a way of making home ownership and loans available to more and more people, but when you do something over and over again and you don't think about constraints, you end up with some problems. So much-needed financing for home buyers turned into an opportunity for some to speculate um, without thinking about whether those that they were loaning money to were willing or able to pay those loans back. And the problem nearly collapsed our economy, nearly put us into a depression. As it is, it was the worst recession that we've had in our lifetime. Now, ten years later, it's maybe hard for all of us to remember how close we came to the brink during that time and how we got out of it. Now, it was controversial, and some of you may agree or disagree with what was done, but what happened is that the U.S. government stepped in with a bailout. They forgave debt, they loaned money to banks and auto companies, they pumped liquidity into the market, and you may not be economically inclined, and what I may have just said may sound like so much mumbo-jumbo, but the bottom line is that U.S. government ate the cost for the misdeeds of a few. Or you could technically say, we as Americans bore the cost. At the same time, you know, all, a lot of people objected. Why would the government bail out a bunch of wealthy bankers? It didn't seem fair, and on some level, it wasn't. These bankers didn't deserve to be bailed out, but the greater good of the entire economy was the reason that the government did what they did. Now, the point here is not to give you an economic lesson. The fact is, and, and I may even have gotten some things wrong, I do have an MBA, but I'm not an economist. The point here, though, is that much of the pain of the crisis was borne by someone other than those who made the mistakes. Many of those responsible walked away virtually scot-free. So what does that have to do with this idea of forgiveness? Well, the truth is, is that each one of us, in one way or another, are like those selfish, greedy bankers. We have made mistakes that we can't repay. We've willfully done something, probably even this week, that we shouldn't have. And we know it. If life is fair, someone has to bear the cost. We can't reasonably expect to get off without paying. Except that that's exactly what happens when we come to Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross was the most expensive bailout in history. He took upon himself the debt that we owe. He forgave us without requiring us to pay a dime. And Jesus did it personally by covering the cost, even though he was personally innocent. Someone always eats the cost. And for the Christian, that someone is Jesus. Now from children... John moves on to talk about fathers, and what he talks about here is friendship with God. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, when he says you know him, he's not talking about an intellectual understanding of God, but something relational. Now, let me just give you an example. I could tell you that I know a former Minnesota governor, um, a former NFL football player, a best-selling author, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. I know five college presidents, but really... 
I don't know any of them in the way that John is talking about the way these fathers know God. I don't know any of those folks I've just mentioned like I know my closest friends, people like Brian and Jim and Doug and many of you. So when John talks about knowing God, who was from the beginning, he's talking about the close friendship that, he, that these folks have with God, a close friendship that we too can have with God, a relationship that continues to grow over the years into something that is satisfying and fulfilling. It's something that takes time. That's why he uses the metaphor of a father. But it's ultimately worth it. The final pair he addresses is young men who have, he says, the power to overcome. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Now, John sees the, temp- the, the struggle with temptation as something profoundly difficult, but not hopeless. He doesn't speak of it in abstract terms of overcoming evil. He actually thinks that evil has a name, and the name of evil is Satan himself. And yet, as powerful as Satan is, he says we have the resources to overcome him. That's why in verse 14, he repeats himself and adds more proof. He says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. There's something important here I think we need to understand, and that is that we live in a world where many do not believe in a literal devil. Sure, there are people who do thoughtless, hurtful, and even evil things, but Satan, really? Aren't we beyond that? You mean there's really a guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork? Scott Peck uh, was a famous and successful psychiatrist. Some of you may have read his book, The Road Less Traveled. And over the years, he worked with patients who struggled with all sorts of difficulties. Sometimes they told him stories of thoughtless, even hurtful things that others had done to them. And he always thought of them in psychological categories. He attributed what he saw to selfishness or some other human failure. But over time, after decades, really, of meeting with patients... He saw cases where he recognized there was something far deeper and darker and more sinister at work. Something his normal psychological categories couldn't quite capture. Something he came to understand as pure evil. Something personal that was more than just a flaw in character. But something that he eventually came to believe had its source in a literal devil. St. Paul recognized this in Ephesians 6.12 when he said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that sounds ominous. And yet John says, because you are strong, the word of God lives in you, and you've overcome the evil one. So as forgiven people, people who know Jesus intimately, we can defeat anything that Satan throws at us. C.S. once noted that there are two equal and opposite errors that we typically make when we talk about Satan. One is to disbelieve in him that he exists, and the other is to believe and have an almost excessive and unhealthy interest in him. So as Christians, we need to realize that Satan is real, and yet also remember that God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. Now in those three verses, what John wants us to keep in mind is first of all, What he said earlier in the first three verses that we are um, people that God has done something for. In Jesus, he's done something important for us. No matter what we've done, we've been forgiven. We can remember that God will be our friend, not in the sense of a buddy-buddy, but an intimate, personal, and close relationship. And we have the strength we need to face and overcome the evil one. Now, in the text that we're looking at, John makes suddenly an abrupt transition, and instead of encouragement, he moves to a bit of a warning, although I think we can find a purpose in this. 
Here's what he has to say in verses 15 to 17. Again, the words are on the screen or in your pew Bible. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whatever does, whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, the first thing we need to understand here is what John is, means when he talks about the world. And the Greek word he uses here is cosmos, which is a word we use um, in certain ways to talk about space. Sometimes the word cosmos in the Bible, if from the context, you see, refers to the physical world. It's a good thing. The Bible tells us in Genesis that God created the world, and when he was done with the creation, he says it was good, very good. And it's good for us as well because there are lots of good things in this world, things that God has given us for our enjoyment, a good meal, a catchy tune, a beautiful picture, an engrossing novel. All these things are good things, a loving friend. But that's not what John is talking about here. Instead, he's using the words cosmos here to describe the world system, a system he believes is organized in opposition to God. It's the mess and muck and corruption that so pervades our world. So just think, if you will, Las Vegas. Maybe you get the idea. Now the fact is, is that God, the fact that God has a negative view of the world system doesn't mean that he cuts it off completely. In fact, we're told in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, in John 3.16, that he loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So as messed up as it is, he still loves it. That said, the point here that John's making is that you cannot love the world and God at the same time. If you love the world, the love of God, he says, is not in you. In other words, you can't have a foot in both worlds. You can't say you love God and go on living as though he does not exist. There's no neutrality. You either love God or you love the world. That's why Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. You've got to make a choice. Now, there's a story, probably apocryphal, that says that the way to catch a monkey is to take a coconut, hollow it out, put a small hole, put some nuts in there, and the monkey will come up wanting the peanuts, put his little hand, squeeze it through that little hole, grab onto the nuts, pull it out, and find out that he can't get his hand out. And so whoever's trying to trap the monkey has a string attached to the other end of the coconut and reels the guy in. That's at least the story. The idea is that if he would just let go of the peanuts, he would be fine. But he won't. He can't. He refuses to and instead is trapped. I think we can and we should celebrate all the goodness that this world offers, the things that come from God. But we must not worship it. We must not hold on to these things so tightly that we can't see that God is the architect, the author of all of this. We must love God far more. So how do you know if you love the world? How do you know that you've gotten trapped up and you end up metaphorically at least like that little monkey grabbing onto the peanuts? Well, John says there are three desires that we all need to be aware of. He calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You might just summarize them by saying what they are here are the desires for pleasure, for possessions, and for recognition. You could even be a little crasser and say this is hedonism, greed, and fame. First, let's talk about the lust of the flesh or pleasure. This is the desire to eat, to drink, to play, to make love, in short, to pursue pleasure for purely selfish reasons. It's a life dominated by the senses. It's a life that seeks even to be self-sufficient and independent of God, not caring what God cares about in any of this. Again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying good things, but we need to take these natural desires 
and not let them become corrupt and perverted because they can become so all-consuming and lead us away from God. When pleasure takes over our lives, it ultimately destroys us. The second on this list is the lust of the eyes or possessions, the desire for more and more stuff, for possessions. And this comes through seeing something because the idea here is the lust of the eyes. You see something and you just have to have it. Again, there's nothing wrong with wearing a nice coat or having a nice house or a car or any number of things. But when we see something and decide that that, our happiness, is in having that, we're prepared to spend vast sums of money that we don't have for something because we believe it will make us happy, then we've crossed a line. The third and final desire is what he calls the pride of life. You might call it the desire for recognition or fame. It's the desire to be seen by others as an important person. It's a desire that shows itself in the pursuit of success and achievement and a search for recognition. Again, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in a job well done or feeling good when you reach a milestone in your career. But when that sense of identity and worth are found and wrapped up in your accomplishments, then you probably, again, cross a line. And especially when we begin to get arrogant by looking down on others who haven't achieved or haven't been able to have the kinds of things that we have in terms of career success, then there's something seriously wrong. Now, the chances are is that one of these three, hedonism, greed, or fame, pleasure, possessions, or recognition, is more tempting for you than another. Now, we're not a church where we have you stand and greet one another and um, pass the peace, and we could, um, but we recognize there are a number of introverts who would prefer not to do that. Um, and we could, in that time, we could say, okay, why don't you tell your neighbor which one of these three is yours? Then that would really make people feel uncomfortable. But I do think it's important for us to ask the question of ourselves. Which of these are more tempting? Which of these lead us maybe to make mistakes that we know we wouldn't make if we would keep them in perspective. John finishes this section by pointing out that these desires were never meant to satisfy. Rightly enjoyed, they're good, but they won't satisfy in any sort of ultimate sense. Only God can do that. So whether it's pleasure or possessions or achievement, it will never be enough. So Mick Jagger was right. Can't get no satisfaction. Because nothing we ever experience, buy or achieve, will ever satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. St. Augustine once wrote, The human heart was made for God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. Ultimately, these temptations cannot satisfy. They can't deliver what they promise. Even a small amount of pleasure or recognition or whatever it might be these things won't last. Pleasure's fleeting. Possessions break. They lose their value. And whatever recognition we may achieve will soon be forgotten. That's why at the very end of this text, in verse 17, John tells his reader this. He says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The person who buys into the world system, who believes that whether it's pleasure or possessions or or a perfect resume, adds up to an identity, will be building on a foundation that simply will not last. But if you put God at the center of your life, if you give him yourself the way, give to himself, yourself to the way of life that God has for you, then you'll find lasting joy and live with God forever. So how do we live this out? Well, we started today by talking about the difference between giving yourself to a passion or giving yourself to a purpose. 
And what John is doing at the very end of this particular section in the letter is reminding us that God has a purpose for our lives, one that changes the perspective, leads us from not being so self-centered but actually committing to something that is broader, more satisfying, and more important. He's telling us to put God first and his purposes at the center of our lives. Many years ago, I uh, heard a sermon preached by an African-American pastor, and there is no way that I could uh, replicate his rhetorical eloquence. But the question he asked has stuck with me over the years. And the question was this, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? And then he explained that this present life on earth is like a dot. It begins, it ends, and it's brief. The line, on the other hand, extends all the way to the right and the left in equal directions forever and ever. It's eternity. He says, if we know Jesus, we will live for eternity. And so the question is, are we living for the dot or the line? Are we living in the dot? Sure, we all are living in the dot. But it's a question of whether what we're living for. The short-sighted person lives for the dot. The world and its desires that will soon pass away. But the wise person, the one with perspective, lives for the line, for the things that last into eternity. The person who puts their hope in the experiences and stuff and recognition will in the end be disappointed. But the person that lives for God will find lasting joy. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these words of both encouragement and challenge that John has left for us. Father, I pray that we would be people who live for the line, that we would give ourselves to a purpose, not just a passion. Father, we know that you have purposes for each one of us. Most of those things are connected to your broader purposes in this world, of doing the good things that you've given us to do, of loving others and serving others in important ways. Father, we also thank you, though, for the foundation of all of this, that's the forgiveness that we experience in Jesus Christ that he has paid the debt that none of us can repay, and he's done it out of love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.